Welcome to Grace 360, a vibrant discussion on issues of diversity that we hope is engaging, biblical, and slightly entertaining. The goal of these podcasts is to create a healthy, honest, and helpful discussion for Christian educators, parents, and students from a biblical perspective on current cultural issues relating to diversity. Diversity, for our purposes, is related to the acrostic grace, gender, race, age, ability, culture, and economic status. While we don't have all the answers, we hope our discussion is thought-provoking and helpful. Welcome to Grace 360. Welcome back. Um, We have invited Antoinette Iroko back in, one of our alums. She's headed off to law school next week. I guess, depending on when you listen to this, it'll be in August. And so we wanted um, to talk to her because she has chosen Howard University over all the universities that she was accepted into and received scholarships from, which made us start a discussion on HBCUs, predominantly white institutions, minority-serving institutions, and just the thought process of in Christian schooling, are we sometimes tunnel-visioned into sending our kids to Christian schools or larger universities with whom we have relationships, or do we consider kind of the breadth of the opportunities that our students have? And so we wanted to have a conversation on this. So I guess I will start off with some just basics on what HBCUs are, and um, as well as minority-serving institutions. So there are 107 HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, And I pulled this right off our government's website. It says the Higher Education Act of 1965, as amended, defines an HBCU as any historically black college or university that was established prior to 1964, whose principal mission was and is the education of black Americans, and that is accredited by a nationally recognized accrediting agency or association determined by the Secretary of Education to be a reliable authority as to the quality of training offered or is according to such an agency or association making reasonable progress towards accreditation. So these were the first schools, some of the very first schools dedicated to give black students the opportunity for higher education. And there's some misconceptions about them. For instance, when I started learning more about HBCUs, I didn't realize that there were some predominantly white HBCUs or predominantly Hispanic HBCUs. And I also thought that you needed to be black to go to those schools, but actually HBCUs want diversity as well. So they are offering scholarships for underrepresented groups within HBCUs. And there are also Christian HBCUs. And then minority serving institutions, those are institutions with 25%. Um, If it's a Hispanic serving institution, 25% Hispanic students. Um, And then if they do not have a 25% of a specific minority group, then if they are 50% serving of minority students and they are considered a minority serving institution. So that's probably all the background that we need to know right now before we dive into a, a conversation. So I'm gonna throw it straight to Antoinette and I'm gonna just throw it at, evidently you're, you're going into your graduate work. You, you I've already done your undergraduate work and you and I talk often. And well, some of those years were in a small Christian school where you were one of few black students, and now you've chosen an HBCU for your law school. Can you kind of explain the, pro- the thought process through all that? Yeah, so I 
did my undergrad at a number of uh, predominantly white institutions, so PWIs. Um, and the reason why I chose to go to Howard specifically um, is because, well, one, Howard has um, a great repu reputation as a law school. Um, and so I um, decided to apply there, understanding the reputation as a law school, but also wanting to experience um, HBCU education because I grew up in like predominantly white spaces. And so I wanted to have at least a couple years of my life and in, in my law school career to experience what it was like being around other people of color and hearing those perspectives and learning from them. Um, I think that sometimes like if you're white, for example, and like going to predominantly white institutions, white schools, things like that, and white spaces, you don't really realize how much the perspective of the teachers or the professors has on you because everything just seems normal. Like it's as, as you would expect it um, as a white person, but um, as, a, as a black person or as a minority in a predominantly white institution, you have no choice but to see things a little bit differently through a different lens um, and one of those would include uh, race and so I just uh, grew up kind of hearing things and learning things in predominantly white spaces that were uh, kind of either disregarding black history or just not taking it into account or ignoring it in some way and so I wanted to go to a school that would give me the full breadth of information from not just a quote-unquote like white perspective or the western european perspective i wanted to hear things from a minority perspective in you know being in the united states because that's where that's what i relate to and that's where my background is obviously so there are a lot of factors that went into choosing an hbcu but most of it comes down to um you know just being around people who I don't want to say like-minded because not all people of one minority think the same, but um, just a, a radically different experience than anything that I had grown up in being in predominantly white spaces. Okay. Can I ask a question? Of course. Thank you. First of all, Antoinette, congratulations. Uh, super excited for you um, at, uh, at Howard Law. And uh, I think it's going to be awesome. But here, here's a question because we talk a lot about diversity, uh, inclusion, right? What, Jenny, what's your DEI? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Inclusion. Okay, so here's the thing, right? There's a lot of um, predominantly white schools out there that you've mentioned, right, and you've, you've grown up in them that want to spend um, time, energy, money, resources to try to include people of color, uh, minority students, to have a greater diversity within the school. And then, as you mentioned, right, like, hey, I was there, but I, I wanted to be with, in a sense, uh, more like-minded or people who have the same experience, people with you know, similar backgrounds, what does that do for, in a sense, a uh, predominantly white institution where students of color bring a, that perspective into their buildings and in, into, into their environment? With you leaving that and going to an HBCU, do you feel like you're kind of not bearing a responsibility that you have to the predominantly white institutions to offer like a, a more diverse perspective? I don't. I think that it is the responsibility of PWIs to teach history from all perspectives, to teach the full 
not just history, but teach things from a diverse perspective because that's just the nature of our country. Like our country isn't just full of white people. And so things shouldn't be taught from just like the Eurocentric or white perspective um, because that's just not what our country is. I don't think that by me or, you know, other people of color choosing to go to HBCUs or other minority serving institutions, I don't think that we are, I don't know, I don't want to like put words in your mouth or like say this is what you're asking, but like um, it's not really our responsibility to like educate PWIs on diversity and what they should be teaching or inclusion and all that stuff. Like that is the, the job of those people to understand different perspectives and understand who they're serving, understand the students that they are trying to educate and understanding, understanding like HBCUs have a very uh, significant whole, like historical context in our country and understanding that it's not my job to teach my professor, like, Oh, you should be teaching things from this perspective. You know, like it's, it's the responsibility of those institutions they're accredited for a reason and like they should be able to educate their students for a world that isn't just full of white people and a world that is like not just one perspective and so um yeah that's kind of that's more on those institutions than it is on me and and other students who choose to go to minority institutions add something to that i think the other side as well is i think if those in, like those institutions that really have that as a as a goal of theirs i think if it's if it's simply aiming to diversify its student body um and it, there's not equal effort into saying hey rather than you know we want we want you to come and you know be a student here so that we can you know diversify these perspectives at the student level it's like hey we 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 want you know, this sounds like a radical idea. It just popped in my head, right? But, you know, hey, no, we want you to to actually go to Howard and we want to establish a sort of internship type deal where when you get done with your education there, then maybe you can come here as a professor and teach at that level. And like, maybe we want to establish, you know, diversity in our head of departments um, rather than just, right? Like, I think, the, the the structural pieces of power and influences within the institutions like that those things are going to have to change so that as those one you then will attract students who will right it, it becomes a different conversation if right if T's following you know one of her you know favorite thinkers you know in the in the realm of law is an African American woman let's say and then finds out oh. She's the head of the law department at this predominantly white institution, right? And it's like, oh well, maybe I want to, maybe I want to go there because, like you say, now I can get the best of both worlds, right? I can get, I can follow somebody that I am looking up to, and I'm also able to, um, you know, be in a space where I'm going to get, you know, an amazing education, and I'm also going to be able to help, you know, in within the student body diversify. Like, so I think. I think there are more layers to that than just saying we want the student here. I think that goes to kind of some of other conversations we we have or we talk about, you know, within our classrooms, like how do we prepare and create a space where students of color um, and other minorities 
want to be here rather than just kind of begging and pleading that they will be here and whether whatever um, the situation at hand is. Yeah, that's a great statement. I just got um, an email from the University of Texas. Um, the president down at the University of Texas was just talking about how they are beginning their diversity, equity, and inclusion um, to try to bring in more students of color. Um, and I was surprised because he actually mentioned 5% of the University of Texas is African-American students, which to me is, I mean, it's just it's mind-blowing to think that's, about. That's insane. It's insane. It's like 5%. That's, I mean, that seems like an incredibly small number. In saying that, right, I think about this because, you know, uh, University of Texas, from a university standpoint, right, we, we were talking about this, um, you know, just amongst ourselves before. And Tamarcus, you and I were talking about this in terms of like reparations and the creation of wealth, you know, for African Americans and all the different things. Right? Education is a huge, huge component in the creation and the sustaining of wealth. And for um, black students not to go to what is considerably um, one of the best and the cheapest educational facilities in the state of Texas to create that wealth from generation to generation to generation to say that in a state like Texas, where, you know, as, as the legislature and, you know, all the citizens of Texas are, are actually funding that particular university for black students not to choose the University of Texas, I think is a huge statement that the University of Texas needs to be asking and answering. And I think your point to Marcus, right, is you can't just look at how do we get more black students? You have to look at how do we, how do we change our entire culture? And I, right, I didn't get that from the email. It was a, how do we get more black students? And I think those are the questions they need to be asking is how do, we, how do we begin to change our entire culture so that we've got more people of color at every aspect, not just looking at, you know, hey, how can we go from 5% to 7%, 7% to 8%, right? That, that's not the, the question. The question is what's the culture that's keeping those students away? Maybe it's something bigger than just you're not having the right kind of student activities. Maybe you're not having the right environment there as an educational facility at all. So that's a, that's a great statement. I also think it's important that we not only look at PWIs in regards to sending our, you know, underrepresented students there, but that we look as Christian schools at educating on HBCUs and supporting HBCUs. I firmly believe that they have an incredible history in our country. That's why we started an HBCU fair at our school was because we wanted to support the HBCUs and we wanted our students to understand that there are more options out there. Um, Tamarcus and I have a very good friend, Charlene Atkins, and one of the things she, they're African-American, one of the things she told her daughters was you will apply to an HBCU. You can apply to as many schools as you want, but one of them will be an HBCU. And both of them said, that's fine. We're, we're not going. I mean, we'll apply to it, but we're not going. And both of them ended up at Spelman. And so um, I, I know I, I am white, but I have already told my daughter who's a junior. I know I'm white. Can you believe it? <laughs> I have already told my daughter who's a junior that, um, that she'll be applying to an HBCU as well. She can apply to many colleges she wants, but she's going to apply to it and tour it because I think that there's something to supporting these schools. I don't know if it's where God's mm-hmm. calling her but I need her to have the education of these schools are amazing schools. And I think that's one of the things that we as Christian schools need to do better at. You you brought in the HBCU, right? College fair to our school, right? Which was amazing. um, Fantastic. I got to learn so much, but one of the things, I mean, Cindy, I have a question for you from a historical perspective, because I didn't even know when HBCUs like were created. Um, And in a sense, (laughs) it's something weird, right? But the idea even to my mind of like, why would you have to create 
a school for black students. And then you're thinking, well, they were created right, right around the time of the civil war, <laughs> right? When, when, you know, I mean, African-American individuals are for the first time being considered actual people. And now they're going to go get educations. And most of the schools that are established at that particular time are not going to allow black individuals into their schools. So, so the, the entire creation of it. And then, you know, a couple of years later is when Plessy versus Ferguson comes out that actually allows you to desegregate. That actually allows public institutions to say, uh, no, I can put you in a, in a separate facility. And so, Cindy, mm-hmm. I mean, think, think about that concept from a historical perspective that I think a lot of us don't appreciate, right, that that's why HBCUs had to be created in the first place. Right, yeah. Um, you know, even before the Civil War, there were schools up in the North that permitted African-Americans to attend and to graduate. In 1823, you had Alexander um, Twilight, who graduated from Middlebury College. He's the first known um, African-American to graduate from an American college. But again, that's up north. 1826, you had Edward Jones and you had um, Russell B. Rosman, who both graduated from a college up in Maine, Bedoin, up north. You had other schools that were also granting degrees. Oberlin, um, which is still very cutting edge. Um, if you know anything about Oberlin and Rutland was as well. You had black professors um, at places like Central College in New York, but it's after, you know, you had a lot of them in all truth. I mean, things that people don't even realize, you know, I went through and I looked at the list. I went and did some research. 1842, the Institute for Colored Youth. Now, of course, note the name. Um, And we'll talk about the change in name in just a minute, because that's why we wound up with Prairie View A&M or Prairie View State. University, as we call it here in Texas, um, because it was a, there was a Sweat v. Painter case of 1950. Um, right, when an African-American young man, a student, was denied entry into UT Law School. Right. Right. Um, right. But we'll talk about... The case right before Brown versus Board of Education. Yes, it was. Right. And, and then the history that, that H, you know, that, that these historically black colleges and universities have played in American history, not just by being established in the South after the Civil War, as a result of the first and the second um, real land grants or land acts, they called for the sale of public lands to help finance these schools in the South, right? And in the one in 1890 in specific, the second one um, actually stipulated, let me, see, let me make sure that I get the quote right because I don't want to misquote this. The 1890, the second Murrow Land Act was matching dollars, so it was dollar for dollar, and no grant was to be made to a state which denied admissions to its land grant college because of an applicant's race. Right. So we wound up with a lot of our A&M schools that way. But what this permitted now was separate but equal. So we're going to set up A&M schools for whites, A&M schools for blacks, using the Moreau Land Act. But when you look at the history and what they have given this nation, these historically black colleges and universities, throwing out some names, Mary McLeod Bethune, W.B. Dubois, graduate of Fisk, right? And the first students at Fisk were emancipated. And to raise money, they went on a singing tour, the Jubilee Singers. Right, even went to Great Britain and sang before the monarch, you know, to raise funds just to change the roof in the buildings and things like that because they were leaky. But when you talk about the change in history that they made, you know, um, Thurgood Marshall, who fought Brown versus the Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas, um, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, and then went on to be our first African American justice on the Supreme Court. You know, he's a graduate of Lincoln, HBCU and a graduate of Howard Law. T, 
right? And he was the protege, the protege, excuse me, of a man who was the vice dean of Howard's Law School and who physically understood that he was too weak to, to take on that fight. So he found himself a young man that was strong enough and young enough to take on the fight. And the man that he picked was Thurgood Marshall. You know, so when you look at the history of our nation, um, the role that these historically black colleges and universities, and you know, a lot of Americans are familiar with the big names, the Morehouse and the Spellmans, the Howards, right? Um, but they're not familiar with the smaller ones that have also contributed to American history and have managed to change American history. So that's one of the one of the the cool things that as teachers we get to do in the classroom. You know, we get to point out these colleges and these universities that yes, they might be historically black colleges and universities, but it doesn't mean that if you're not black that you're not allowed in. So please fill out the application and go, because as Jenny mentioned, they want a diverse student population. They're not calling for a black nationalism. They're not calling for a voluntary segregation. But what they do do is they afford, they, they provide that, that solid and quality education that you can get. Um, and you can get it at a small name school. It doesn't have to be at a big name school, as we all know. So when you look at the history, first in the South, starting with these colleges, you know, and, and if you can imagine the sacrifice that it would take on the part of a community that for the most part, because of the condition they were being freed from, that condition of enslavement, that were mostly impoverished, and they tightened the belt, and they contributed money, and they started these schools. And a lot of times it was started by a denomination as well. The African Methodist Episcopal Church jumped in there. The Presbyterian Church jumped in there. Um, we can't discount the Freedmen's Bureau as a result of Reconstruction also. I mean, the Freedmen's Bureau, a lot of people call it a welfare state organization, which in some cases, I guess it does fit the definition, but it was fulfilling a need. You know, but when you think of the, the, the financial contribution that the African-American community provided through great sacrifice to educate um, the next generation of African-Americans, and then, of course, you have to talk about the contention that came in between the two different approaches. Do we take the W.B. Du Bois approach or do we take the Booker T. Washington approach? Right. And there's a lot of controversy there as to which one was the right one. And there was a lot of contention between these two great men who contributed greatly to the United States and to our history as a nation, as a whole, coming from opposing viewpoints on that stand. So one of the things that um, goes along with colleges is always sororities and fraternities. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know if we wanted to dive in a little bit and um, educate. I know here at our school, we do a little education for our seniors on the different opportunities with sororities and fraternities going into college. And so a few years ago, I said, hey, what are we doing with the black sororities and fraternities? How are we educating our parents and our families on that application process? You know, what does that look like? And actually it was spurred by a black mom who called me and said, Jenny, like, you know, it's a totally different application process. You know, they're totally different organizations. And so I had to do some educating on that. So um, I know, Tamarcus, you are very, um, I guess, passionate. Would you say passionate about this area? Would you mind educating us a little bit on this? Absolutely. So one of the things that we, um, I'm not myself, I'll start by saying, af affiliated with, with any of them, but I have done uh, some research on them and most probably on the Kappas. And um, I just like to talk about like kind of the conception about why they were brought about kind of to uh, Cindy's point, like the, 
environment and the historical background of what even brought them about and what they were created and stood for uh, is, is very, very interesting to me. And so started out on uh, Indiana's uh, campus and there was, you know, a number of African-American students um, that attended there. They were, of course, uh, the minority. And, you know, there there were so many rules um, surrounding, you know, the African-Americans on campus. Like they weren't allowed to to gather. They obviously weren't allowed to be in the white sororities or fraternities. They, you know, weren't allowed to play a lot of the sports because they weren't allowed to be in contact with, you know, the, the other white students. And so there was just a lot of disjunction and really loneliness when it came to being an African-American on campus. Like you were just, basically you could go to class and then you were, you know, by yourself. Um, and so it was, you know, out of that, they, you know, eventually got together and created this fraternity. And one of the, the first things that they made sure um, became a part of the structure was that anybody from any background um, would be able to um, attend and be a part of, you know, their brotherhood. Um, and a lot of, you know, those founders, you know, also happened to be believers um, and were, were very, very much Christian and moral men who took education seriously and wanted to continue to foster and develop like-minded men. And so, you know, just that's just, just giving a little bit. And personally, you know, I know a number of men in my life growing up um, in church who were, you know, a part of uh, various organizations, a good friend of mine. You know, I got a couple friends who are alphas. Uh, my mentees are alpha. Um, got, you know, cousins and uncles who are kappas. My sister um, is a delta and a number of, of other friends. And, you know, I think about the, the bond and the friendship that they all have, but then also the contribution that they uh, provide and give back in the African-American community. Um, and it's very significant and very generous. And for that in and of itself, it's something that, you know, a lot of, you know, I've been asked before, could I bring it up? And I'm shocked at how many people like have no conception that they're even there. And then they're like, well, I don't understand why it has to be black. And it kind of goes back to the whole conversation surrounding HBCUs. And I, I just always have to remind people like, you know, part of the reason African-Americans created so many things for themselves and other people is because they didn't have the access at the time that it was created. But then also noting that even at, from their conception, they desired for those things to be, like we say, multi-ethnic. And it was generally the reason why it has stayed probably more uh, less multi-ethnic than they envisioned was not because people weren't allowed, but because people just chose not to. And now so much to the point to where it's almost like if you don't, grow up in the community where that's the norm, you don't even hear about it. Yeah, I agree with you on the not wanting to. Um, I, I attended predominantly black church and um, our church pastor planted it in the whitest neighborhood that he could find. And it's still predominantly black. And that's not on him because he had intentionally was going to be diverse and it did not happen. And so it's very interesting with that. So um, the black fraternities and sororities, right? Divine nine, um, some of the differences or maybe one of the differences is you can apply to be part of the sorority or fraternity after college. It's a lifelong um, organization that you can join later on in life, which is a pretty neat thing. So um, anything? Yes. Um, and I know this is 
to some degree, this is peripheral in our conversation, but I think just given all of what we've shared, um, I think there's a principle that's really important in all of this. And I think in, in terms of when we're talking about growing in diversity um, and, and reconciliation, I think Matt Chandler has talked about this. Maybe Dan, maybe I was talking to you about this, but then the necessity of having right African-Americans who are willing to maneuver and uh, navigate in predominantly white spaces, but then also having, you know, white men and women who are willing to maneuver and work in predominantly African-American spaces. Um, and a, a, a good mentor of, of mine growing up uh, in my church is a white guy, his name is Mark Forty. We used to call him the Italian stallion. Um, <laughs> he was getting ready to, basically he wanted to be a missionary. And so the, you know, one of his uh, mentors that he was talking to at the time that he had been praying about it, you know, some years ago, um, he told him, he said, hey, if you really want to be on mission for God and you want to, you know, do his work in a different culture, he said, you don't need to go to another country. He said, find a predominantly African-American church, go there. He was like, don't go there and apply to be in any kind of position. He said, just attend and serve as a lay leader. And um, he went and um, ended up joining my church. He uh, started volunteering in the youth ministry and has been, you know, doing that ever since. And one of the awesome things that has come from that is he's learned, one, he's learned so much more about the experiences of African-Americans, the unique um, lives and, and, you know, and things of African-Americans. But then he's also had the opportunity to take and use the, the things and the influences and the positions that, that he has and the connections that he has to be able to extend opportunities where, you know, they may not have been given before. Um, and I just, I think there's a, a very important need for the white community not to just want to bring in African-Americans to work under them to accomplish their goals and aspirations, but to have the humility to also go and sit under the leadership of African-American men and women and say, hey, I'll come here and be a, a servant and learn as well. I think the more we start to see that, the more we're going to start to really see um, some things turn around. Because, you know, I tell people all the time when they ask me about resources and things they could do, and I'm just like, you're, you're not going to learn more about me by reading a bunch of books and listening to a bunch of podcasts. Um, but you'll get to know me and my family really well if you get to know me and my family really well. And that means being relational and intentional instead of, you know, studying me as an inanimate object. And so. Yeah. Plus I think it's, it's very much, it gets into that transactional relationship that there's only a relationship so that I get something out of it. And, and that's not biblical. <laughs> that's not right. And so I do believe it has a lot to do with that also. So I guess we'll sign off, but before we sign off, I'm going to throw it back to Antoinette one more time. And I'm going to just ask you, what are you most excited about? Like if you, you can be very blunt. We want to hear the very, what, what, I don't even know what it is, but what are you most excited about going to a, an HBCU? So I've heard the statistic that black women specifically make up like 2% of lawyers. And so I think the thing that I'm most excited about is not only being around other 
black women um, and black men who are like venturing into this field, but just like encouraging one another, building each other up, learning from one another, getting to know more about the history of our school, the history of the profession, the history of our government, and um, really bringing a, (laughs) sounds cliche, but like a diverse perspective, but like bringing a perspective to the field, to the industry that is different than the status quo. Um, And I'm just really excited about being someone who could potentially be like a game changer in the field and in our government and in politics and in law and all of the above. So play games, we're trying to be a game changer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. With all of us, we're going to go ahead and shout out that, you know, come 20, what, 20, 40, 20, whatever. I don't know how many years. I don't know. I can't do the math. Um, but she'll be running for president and we'll be voting. <laughs> I'll be wearing her t-shirt. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'll be eligible in 2030. Okay, so I was 10 years too far. <laughs> I don't know the other. If you don't run, I'm going to just write your name on the ballot. <laughs> Actually, if you, if you qualify, well, yeah. <laughs> these podcasts will actually be worth a lot of money because yes. she's really famous yes <laughs> so thank y'all for joining us today as we talked mainly about hbcus and the importance in our country and how christian schools need to do better at expanding um, the options for our students of where they go after our school so we'll hope that you listen in next time thanks Thank you for listening to Grace 360. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes and are not intended to be divisive or inflammatory in nature. We hope you listened and learned as much as we have in the process of producing the show and pray you'll join us for our next episode. You can find us on social media. We would love to have you as part of our discussion with your thoughts and questions. Once again, thank you for listening to Grace 360.